Hi, and welcome to another episode of A Shot Glass of Recovery with your host, Julie, half of the dynamic duo that brings you the podcast, Two Sober Chicks. Well, good morning, y'all. Welcome to the weekend edition of A Shot Glass of Recovery. My name is Julie, and I'll be reading you a story from the big book today. Because I haven't done it in a while. And it's fun, and I like reading to you. So we're picking up at story eight in the back of the big book on page 258. Let's take a peek into this world, shall we? The title of this story, which is a true story, and I mean it. I know I sound like I'm joking, and if you listen to me a lot, I'm a jokester, but these are all real stories of the first, I think it's 100 people. Let me check personal histories. It's one of the personal stories of how 42 alcoholics recovered from their malady. Um, But it's not 42. It's more than that because I think there's two sections. Anyways, it doesn't effing matter. Okay, welcome to story eight. He sold himself short, but he found there was a higher power that had more faith in him than he had in himself. Thus, AA was born in Chicago. Shout out to Chicago. I love Chicago. Um, I was going to say something stupid, but I, I'll, I won't. I love Chicago. I Okay, so the last time I was in Chicago, I was there with a friend of mine because her daughter was doing a dance recital, which I live in Canada and seems impossible now since COVID has shut down all of our lives for the last eight months, I think it's been, to the thought of just jumping in a vehicle and driving across the border and checking into a hotel and being in places with lots of people and no masks. And it's almost like life before COVID and life after. So I love Chicago and the deep dish pizza. It was life, was life. It's such a cool city. I want to go back so badly. All right. Um, I grew up in a small town outside Akron, Ohio. Oh, shout out, Dr. Bob, where the life was very typical of any average small town. I was very much interested in athletics, and because of this and parental influence, I didn't drink or smoke in either grade or high school. All of this changed when I went to college. Hmm any of us relate? I had to adapt to new situations, associations, and associates, and it seemed to be the smart thing to drink and smoke. I confined drinking to weekends and drank normally in college and for several years thereafter. I too confined drinking to weekends in the beginning. After I left school, I went to work in Akron, living at home with my parents. Home life was again a restraining influence. When I drank, I hid it from my folks out of respect for their feelings. This continued until I was 27. Then I started traveling with the United States and Canada as my territory, and with so much freedom and with an unlimited expense account, I was soon drinking every night and kidding myself that it was all part of the job. I know now that 60% of the time I drank alone without benefit of customers. I'm having my tea right now. Excuse me for a moment. You are my first thought in the morning sometimes, y'all. Okay. 
1930, I moved to Chicago. Shortly thereafter, aided by the Depression, I found that I had a great deal of spare time and that a little drink in the morning helped. By 1932, I was going on two or three benders, two or three day benders. That same year, my wife became fed up with my drinking around the house and called my dad in Akron to come and pick me up. She asked him to do something about me because she couldn't. She was thoroughly disgusted. This was the beginning of five years of bouncing back and forth between my home in Chicago and Akron to sober up. It was a period of binges coming closer and closer together and being of longer duration. Once, Dad came all the way to Florida to sober me up after a hotel manager called him and said that if he wanted to see me alive, he'd better get there fast. My wife could not understand why I would sober up for Dad, but not for her. They went into a huddle, and Dad explained that he simply took my pants, shoes, and money away so that I could get no liquor and had to sober up. One time, my wife decided to try this too. After finding every bottle that I had, I had hidden around the apartment, she took away my pants, my shoes, my money, and my keys, threw them under the bed in the back bedroom, and slip-locked our door. By 1 a.m., I was desperate. I found some wool stockings, some white flannels that had shrunk to my knees, and an old jacket. I jimmied the front door so that I could get back in and walked out. I was hit by an icy blast. It was February with snow and ice on the ground, and I had a four-block walk to the nearest cab stand. But I made it. On my ride to the nearest bar, I sold the driver on how misunderstood I was by my wife and what an unreasonable person she was. By the time we reached the bar, he was willing to buy me a quart with his own money. Oh my gosh, we're so good at being deceptive and spinning stories. Then when we got back to the apartment, he was willing to wait two or three days until I got my health back to be paid off for the liquor and fare. I was a good salesman. My wife could not understand the next morning why I was drunker than the night before when she had taken my bottles. And his pants, by the way. After a particularly bad Christmas and New Year's holiday, Dad picked me up again early in January 1937 to go through the usual sobering up routine. This consisted of walking the floor for three or four days and nights until I could take nourishment. This time he had a suggestion to offer. He waited until I was completely sober, and on the day before I was to head back for Chicago, he told me of a small group of men in Akron who had apparently had the same problem that I had, but were doing something about it. He said they were sober, happy, and had their self-respect back, as well as the respect of their neighbors. He mentioned two of them whom I had known through the years and suggested that I talk with them. But I had my health back, and besides, I reasoned, they were much worse than I would ever be. Why, even a year ago, I had seen Howard, an ex-doctor, mooching a dime for a drink. I could not possibly be that bad. I would at least ask for a quarter. So I told Dad that I would lick it on my own, that I would drink nothing for a month, and after that, only beer. Oh, the deception of beer. Several months later, Dad was back in Chicago to pick me up again. But this time, my attitude was entirely different. I could not wait to tell him that I wanted help, that if these men in Akron had anything, I wanted it and would do anything to get it. I was completely licked by alcohol. 
I can still remember very distinctly getting into Akron at 11 p.m. and routing this same Howard out of bed to do something about me. He spent two hours with me that night telling me his story. He said he had finally learned that drinking was a fatal illness made up of an allergy plus an obsession. And once the drinking had passed from habit to obsession, we were completely hopeless and could look forward only to spending the balance of our lives in mental institutions or to death. He laid great stress on the progression of his attitude toward life and people, and most of his attitudes had been very similar to mine. I thought at times that he was telling my story. I had thought that I was completely different from other people, that I was beginning to become a little balmy, even to the point of withdrawing more and more from society and wanting to be alone with my bottle. Here was a man with essentially the same outlook on life, except that he had done something about it. He was happy, getting a kick out of life and people, and beginning to get his medical practice back again. As I look back on that first evening, I realized that I began to hope, then, for the first time, and I felt that if he could regain these things, perhaps it would be possible for me to... Oh, the dawn of hope, it's such a beautiful thing. The next afternoon and evening, two other men visited me, and each told me his story and the things that they were doing. Doing, doing, by the way, if you're listening, doing things they were doing to try to recover from this tragic illness. They had that certain something that seemed to glow, a peace, a serenity combined with happiness. Oh, I have a little sticky note in here. In the next two or three days, the balance of this handful of men contacted me, encouraged me, and told me how they were trying to live this program of recovery and the fun they were having doing it. That also struck me. In the beginning of um, when I started going to AA, I was like, these people are genuinely happy and having fun. How could they without booze, I asked myself. Then I learned. Because why? I did what they told me to. But by the way, it didn't happen right away for me. So I had to stake all my hope on these people and that they were telling me the truth and guess what they were. Then and only then, after a thorough indoctrination by eight or nine individuals, was I allowed to attend my first meeting. Whoa! This first meeting was held in the living room of a home and was led by Bill D., the first man that Bill W. and Dr. Bob had worked with successfully. Three Bs, Bill D., Bill W., Dr. Bob. The meeting consisted of perhaps eight or nine alcoholics and seven or eight wives. It was different from the meetings now held. The big AA book had not been written. Oh my God, can you imagine? And there was no literature except various religious pamphlets. Oh, that was so not fly today. The program was carried on entirely by word of mouth. The meeting lasted an hour and closed with the Lord's Prayer. After it was closed, we all retired to the kitchen and had coffee and donuts and more discussion until the small hours of the morning. Speaking of coffee and donuts, I'm going to have some tea. Oh, I love my tea. Never took to coffee. I was terribly impressed by this meeting and the quality of happiness these men displayed, despite their lack of material means. Can I just interject here? I am astonished with the level of unhappiness, ungratefulness, and um, what was the other word I was going to use? Unhappiness, ungratefulness, 
I don't know, just general malaise in our North American, and I can't believe I use this word because I hate it, but now I get it, in our North American privilege. Like we are so unsatisfied with everything. We don't have enough. The weather's not nice enough. But then when I have been to countries where there is very little, and I have friends that have been to countries that have so very little, and they look around and the people are so happy. It is becoming so obvious to me lately, and especially in recovery too, right? Because we learn it's not, our happiness has nothing to do with our outside circumstances. It has everything to do with our inward posture. And that's why gratitude saves us a lot. Because we're focused on the, what we do have, and we don't have to lament what we don't have. Anyways, how did I come into that? Yes, I was terribly impressed by this meeting and the quality of happiness these men displayed, despite their lack of material means. In this small group, during the Depression, there was no one who was not hard up. I stayed in Akron two or three weeks on my initial trip trying to absorb as much of the program and philosophy as possible. That will get you sober right there. I spent a great deal of time with Dr. Bob whenever he had the time to spare and in the homes of two or three other people trying to see how the family lived the program. That's so nice. Every evening we would meet at the home of one of the members and have coffee and donuts and spend a social evening. That's also, okay, I'm so sorry if you hate the way I read stories, but oh well. Um, It's also something I'm noticing lately, and I think one of the gifts that has come out of the hardships of COVID. We used to be a very social society, and now we're a very individualistic society. We have never had more rates of suicide due to depression and more... Um, of an outcry of young people feeling isolated during this social media time because we are social creatures. It's one of the reasons we get sick alone and we get better together. We come into these fellowships and all of a sudden we have a community and community is healing. We need people as much as people like me who's an introvert that could probably live in a cave and be very happy. We need people. It is programmed into our DNA to be community people. And so we have back then meetings that lasted a long time. Um, Even if you talk to old timers, especially here in the gay community. But listen, the gay community has it right, by the way. They have way more social interaction and fellowship and community than any non-gay fellowship up here. I shouldn't say that. What I mean is we have a very strong fellowship up here for LGBTQ. And I am jealous and uh, envious of the fellowship and the things that they do together that we could all learn from the way that they do things. So uh, the one of the gifts that can come out of the terribleness of COVID is I think we've realized how much we need people because it's been taken away from us. And that online friendships and that Facebook friends and that all of the filters and the lack of actual physical and spiritual connection with people affects us. We need each other. After, thank you for hanging out during that commercial break. The day before I was due to go back to Chicago, it was Dr. Bob's afternoon off. He had me to the office and we spent three or four hours formally going through the the six-step program as it was at that time. Oh my gosh. 
The six steps were complete deflation. Okay, so to me, that would be step one, because you're powerless over alcohol, your life had become unmanageable. I don't know how much worse it can get than that. Two, dependence and guidance from a higher power. That's step two and three right there. We believe in a higher power, we surrender to a higher power. Three, moral inventory. That's our comp. That's our modern step four. Um, four, confession. That's our modern step five. Five, restitution. So that would be amends. So that would be uh, nine. Continue to work with other alcoholics. That would be 12. So what's interesting is, um, I guess, in the moral inventory, that would be four, five, and six. Sorry, that would be four. <laughs> Sorry, I'm confusing you. What they haven't put in here explicitly is knowing your character defects and wanting them to be removed, six, asking God to come in and help you remove them, seven, making a list of persons you have harmed. I mean, obviously with restitution, you know who you're going to um, make amends to. And 11, which is my favorite step, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Uh, that isn't in there either. So that's really cool that I didn't know that there were only six steps at the beginning. Dr. Bob led me through all of these steps. At the moral inventory, he brought up several of my bad personality traits or character defects, such as selfishness, conceit, jealousy, carelessness, intolerance. Yes, by the way, intolerance, meaning your view is right and everyone else is wrong. That is a character defect. Ill temper. That was a character defect for me. Sarcasm, which I think is a character uh, benefit. I quite enjoy sarcasm. And resentments. We went over these at great length. And then he finally asked me if I wanted these defects of character removed. When I said yes, we both knelt at his desk and prayed, each of us asking to have these defects taken away. That is so good, ma'am. That humility is so necessary. This picture is still vivid. Um, all crunched up in my closet. I want to talk a little bit about humility because that's what that is. And it reminds me of uh, something that I framed and put on my desk yesterday as I was writing a sermon. Um, part of my sermon prep is, I want to go get that thing. Hang on, I'll be right back. And we're back. Okay. So... Okay, I want to make sure I have my place here. So I, when I was writing my sermon yesterday, which is a sermon on human trafficking, part of my process, and I believe that this is a process for anyone doing any kind of work when you're in any kind of program and you are connected to a power greater than yourself. doesn't matter what it is, just your higher power. I think when we're in service to anyone, which is going to a meeting, greeting at the door, writing a sermon, doesn't matter. I strongly believe that humility is one of the greatest spiritual disciplines that we will ever cultivate. And in order to cultivate a spiritual, any kind of spiritual posture or behavior or uh, discipline, we have to have humility because humility is knowing who we are in the grand scheme of life, knowing we are not God, knowing there's a higher power and surrendering to that higher power. So a part of my process is I go into a little bit of... um. <sighs> I don't know how else to say it. I'm trying to be non-religious, so forgive me for religious terminology. I go into um, a, 
a little period of praise and worship and I get down on my knees and I praise the Lord and I ask to and I physically will breathe out all of the air in my body while asking the Holy Spirit to empty me of myself so that God can fill me and have me do what he wants me to do. And in my case yesterday, to have me write a sermon that is not of me, that does not come from me, that is something that God is asking me to say to his people. And so to help me do that, I have something which I have had from Dr. Bob's house. You can buy these cards. They're like, they're a little bit bigger than four by seven, four by six. They're probably five by seven. And they are cards that you can buy in Dr. Bob's house. Well, the house next to Dr. Bob, which is a gift shop. And one of them is humility. And on the top, it says inscription from a plaque on Dr. Bob's desk, which to him described humility. And it goes on to say, perpetual quietness of the heart. It is to have no trouble. It is never to be fretted or vexed, irritable or sore, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me. And when I am blamed or despised, it is to have a blessed home in myself where I can go in and shut the door and pray to my father in secret and be at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around and about is seeming trouble. Isn't that beautiful? That was also helpful to me because I was very ramped up because I have very countercultural beliefs, should you say, about some things. And I am having a lot of people have issues with it and wanting to correct me and discuss it. What's funny is people that I hardly know who have barely talked to me in years all of a sudden want to have discussions about my political views or my opinions or my leanings. And I'm like, how come I can, how come everyone else that agrees with all of the status quo can have their own opinions and I never correct anybody and I never judge anybody? At least I hope no one ever feels judged by me. But then all of a sudden I have an opinion and it's not popular and everyone wants to correct me and have discussions about it. So that was difficult for me yesterday because I had to write a sermon and it is I cannot bring all of that shit and baggage when I am in service to people or to the Lord. So having that time with my higher power, it's basically a step 11 what I did yesterday before I started writing. Having that connection with a higher power and physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually emptying yourself of anger and judgment and anxiety and stress is really hard but so necessary. So that reading helps me because it says that humility is to cultivate a quietness of heart and it is to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me, and it goes on to say, to be at rest even when nobody praises me when I am blamed or despised and it talks about the the home inside of ourselves that when we're there with God it is all okay and that's the only thing that matters and opinions don't matter and how other people feel about you don't matter and your anger and resentments at other people don't matter they are all huge fucking distractions from who you are what your purpose is and your relationship with God they are all distractions thank you for yet hanging in there during another commercial break during this reading. Dr. Bob led me through all of these steps. At the moral inventory, oh, we read that. 
When I said yes to having these defects of character removed, we both knelt at his desk and prayed, each of us asking to have these defects taken away. This picture is still vivid. If I live to be 100, it will always stand out in my mind. It was very impressive, and I wish that every AA could have the benefit of this type of sponsorship today. Dr. Bob always emphasized the religious angle very strongly, and I think it helped. I know it helped me. Dr. Bob then led me through the restitution step in which I made a list of all persons I had harmed. Okay, so restitution is eight and nine. And worked out the ways and the means by slowly making restitution. I made several decisions at that time. One of them was that I would try to get a group started in Chicago. By the way, anybody can start a group. Just write head office, write to New York. Google it, write, start your own group. The second was that I would have to return to Akron to attend meetings at least every two months until I did get a group started in Chicago. Third, I decided I must place this program above everything else, even my family, because if I did not maintain my sobriety, I would lose my family anyway. If I did not maintain my sobriety, I would not have a job. If I did not maintain my sobriety, I would have no friends left. I had few enough at the time. The next day, I went back to Chicago and started a vigorous campaign among my so-called friends or drinking companions. Their answer was always the same. If they needed it at any time, they would surely get in touch with me. I went to a minister and a doctor whom I still knew, and they in turn asked me how long I had been sober. When I told them six weeks, they were polite and said that they would contact me in case they had anyone with an alcoholic problem. Needless to say, it was a year or more before they did contact me. On my trips back to Akron to get my spirits recharged and to work with other alcoholics, I would ask Dr. Bob about this delay and wonder just what was wrong with me. He would invariably reply, When you are right and the time is right, providence will provide. That's providence here with a capital P, meaning higher power. You must always be willing and continue to make contacts. A few months after I made my original trip to Akron, I was feeling pretty cocky, and I didn't think my wife was treating me with proper respect. (laughs) Now that I was an outstanding citizen, so I set out to get drunk deliberately just to teach her what she was missing. Oh, that's so good. Let me punish you by abusing me. A week later, I had to get to an old friend from Akron. A week later, I had to get an old friend from Akron to spend two days sobering me up. That was my lesson, that one could not take the moral inventory and then file it away, and the alcoholic has to continue to take inventory every day if he expects to get well and stay well. That was my only slip. It taught me a valuable lesson. In the summer of 1938, almost a year from the time I made my original contact with Akron, the man for whom I was working and who knew about the program approached me and asked if I could do anything about one of his salesmen who was drinking very heavily. I went to the sanitarium where this chap was incarcerated and found, to my surprise, that he was interested. He had been wanting to do something about his drinking for a long time, but did not know how. I spent several days with him, but I did not feel adequate to pass the program on to him by myself. So I suggested that he take a trip to Akron for a couple of weeks, which he did, living with one of the AA families there. When he returned, we had practically daily meetings from that time on. 
A few months later, one of the men who had been in touch with the group in Akron came to Chicago to live, and then there were three of us who continued to have informal meetings quite regularly. In the spring of 1939, the big book was printed. Oh my God, that must have been so exciting. And we had two inquiries from the New York office because of a 15-minute radio talk that was made. Neither one of the two was interested for himself, one being a mother who wanted to do something for her son. Blessed mamas. I suggested to her that she should see the son's a minister or doctor and that perhaps he would recommend the AA program. The doctor, a young man, immediately took fire with the idea, and while he did not convince the son, he turned over two prospects who were anxious for the program. The three of us did not feel up to the job, and after a few meetings, we convinced the prospects that they too should go to Akron where they could see an older group in action. In the meantime, another doctor in Evanston became convinced that the program had possibilities and turned over a woman to us to do something about. She was full of enthusiasm and also made the trip to Akron. Immediately on her return in the autumn of 1939, we began to have formal meetings once a week, and we have continued to do this and to expand ever since. Occasionally, it is accorded to a few of us to watch something fine grow from a tiny kernel into something of gigantic goodness. Such has been my privilege, both nationally and in my home city. From a mere handful in Akron, we have spread throughout the world. From a single member in the Chicago area commuting to Akron, we now exceed 6,000. These last 18 years have been the happiest of my life, trite though that statement may seem. Fifteen of those years I would not have enjoyed had I continued to drinking. Doctors told me before I stopped that I had only three years at the outside to live. The latest part of my life has had a purpose, not in great things accomplished, but in daily living. Can I get an amen? Daily living is a big deal. Courage to face each day has replaced the fears and uncertainties of earlier years. Acceptance of things as they are has replaced the old impatient champing at the bit to conquer the world. I have stopped tilting at windmills and instead have tried to accomplish the little daily tasks, unimportant in themselves, but tasks that are an integral part of living fully. Where decision, contempt, and pity were once shown me, I now enjoy the respect of many people. Where once I had casual acquaintances, all of whom were fair-weather friends, I now have a host of friends who accept me for who I am. And over my AA years, I have made many real, honest, sincere friendships that I shall always cherish. I'm rated as a modestly successful man. My stock of material goods isn't great, but I have a fortune in friendships, courage, self-assurance, and honest appraisal of my own abilities. Above all, I have gained the greatest thing accorded to any man, the love and understanding of a gracious God who has lifted me from the alcoholic scrap heap to a position of trust where I have been able to reap the rich rewards that come from showing a little love for others and from serving them as I can. Oh my gosh, that was so good. What was the sticky note that fell out? Rigorous honesty. My disease will never go away. Lies help me feed it. Oh, I was asked to speak at a conference one time, and these are my four little notes that I wanted to talk about. Relapse and my higher power, essential in living a life of recovery, and we deserve it. We do deserve it. You deserve it. I love this life. 
Sober life is so good. Recovered life is so good. Well, you've been listening to me for 32 minutes, and I appreciate that because it turns out it's impossible for me to read a story without my personal interjections, of which I hope you enjoy, because I love being here with you. So, thank you for listening. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. If you need to reach either me or Lisa, twosoberchicks at gmail.com. I say it almost every time. Instagram and Twitter at twosoberchicks. We love you. We appreciate you. You got this. 